0: Ooh, good morning and welcome back to the second hour of love babs love talk on babs rolls ivy I'm so delighted to have this conversation today with uh, Nicholas Davidoff. Hello. Hello, how are you Babs? It is nice to see you.
1: Nice to see you.
0: I am coming to the library to hear you talk with uh, our friend, Mr. Betts.
1: Oh, good. Thank you for doing that.
0: That's today, right at 630 or something whatever. Yeah. So you got this brand new book out that I'm hearing good things about. People are really taken to this thing. And it just hit the is it out yet? Is it even out? Is it yesterday? The
1: finally, after okay. eight years of working on it. Oh my maybe god. It was nine, I lost count. Eight years is a huge amount of time
0: to put into anything. Yeah. Did you ever feel like, you know what? I'm ready to give this story up.
1: <laughs> no, that I didn't feel, although I would say that certain family members um might have might have wished. Not really. No, I it was really. <laughs> I mean I I was I was committed from the beginning it went back to my New Haven childhood writing this book and it felt really important and it felt really important to do it as well as I could and with the fullness um that I thought that such an important subject deserved and hadn't really been accorded and that felt to me it felt to me like rooted in a kind of unfairness that I that I Felt going all the way back to again to childhood. Um, you know, you and I talked about this while I was writing it, and um, if you want, I'll go ahead and explain where it came from. Um, well,
0: I, I, I want to tell people the name of the book: "The Other Side of Prospect: A Story of Violence, Injustice, and the American City." So, and you're not you're no stranger to writing amazing books. I mean, you're a Pulitzer Prize nominated author, so you're no story to, you're no stranger to great storytelling.
1: I hope. I mean, you know, different books take different levels of, I think, um, experience. And, uh, you know, this is something, again, uh, uh, that I thought about writing for a really long time before I did. And that's because I thought that it would be challenging. And I didn't know if I was experienced enough to do it. And um, I think with subjects like this, when you're talking about subjects like interwoven poverty and violence and how inequity comes to be and what its consequences are, these are significant, deep topics, and they are not um, they are not worth writing about unless you can do it with full attention and sophistication and sensitivity that they deserve. And if you can't, um, which I wasn't always sure when I was younger I could, then I think you wait. And so that's why I waited so long
0: you come to the story or how does the story come to you because i i I can't imagine just like walking down the street and you're like hey i'm gonna write this story i don't know anything about it like how did you find this story
1: i think i think it's um the book is rooted really if i had to say um it's a good question i think it's rooted in a personal story and then in a specific story right the personal story would be growing up in new haven you know i had a single mom won a lot of money she slept on you know on the fold out and she's always worried how she's going to make it through the month and make the rent and things like that but then you know my new haven childhood was i spent a lot of time playing baseball all the way through my childhood and that gives most kids just know their neighborhood but i knew the whole city because i played on every field there was and that for me was a real blessing as a kid because It deepened my experience of where I came from. Um, And so I think particularly, if you ask me, I would say that it was at Bowen Field in Newhallville when I was, you know, in my early teens. I remember very vividly standing there on the field. And, you know, as kids, you don't talk about these things. You just have a sense of what's going on. And I standing out there, I, you know, I'd been to where some of my, you know, I, you knew everybody at every field, right? You knew your teammates, you knew opponents, you knew the people who came to games. And I had some sense, it was just my sense, that you know, my my mom might've had her struggles and my dad was in and out of institutions, but you know, compared to me, some of the people who I was playing baseball with were, their families were really struggling. And I standing there on that field, I just remember it was a dusty field and I was just thinking about it. And when you're a child, It gets really formal in your mind right now. It's just looking out beyond the field, and so close was Yale. And for any of us who are Townie kids who grew up in New Haven, Yale, there's a feeling that this is paradise for young people. And it just seemed very strange to me that I couldn't explain. I just thought, how could this be that these two? very different childhoods existed in such close proximity and yet we're, you know, in America away. And this was just something I thought about all my life. I thought about how it felt, why it might be. And again, maybe these were conversations because again, as children, you don't have them, or at least we didn't, um, that maybe, you know, those were conversations that I was in part waiting to have. But then if you ask where the specific story came from, so I moved back from Brooklyn to New Haven with my family because it's something I wanna do. And I know generally, I guess you could say thematically what I want to do, but you're right. This isn't a specific story. And everything changed when I got a call from a lawyer in New Haven who'd heard what I was doing. And he said, I just want to tell you about one of my clients. And once he began telling me about this young man who was in prison for all these years since he was a teenager for something the lawyer was very sure he didn't do. Now, I didn't know whether or not he did it. But as soon as I began to review the case and to get a deeper sense of, this young man and his community and so forth, it became clear that this was going to be a lens for me to think more deeply about some of the problems that have persisted in New Haven. New Haven's just a representative city, right? New Haven's problems are because it's a small city with big city problems. They're the problems of many places, and it has the potential and the wonder of many places too. But I call New Haven a model city or you call it a representative city because Everywhere you travel in the country, you see similar, you see it as kind of almost a template for similar issues that are American issues.
0: Yes. So when you decided to, what was the moment that made you decide that this is where you were gonna spend your time and that you were gonna write about this? Like, what was that moment?
1: I think, you know, I think um, there I was with this young man whose name is Bobby and I was talking with him, and I knew that, you know, I knew that I was very invested in the social science and in the history and making sure that I understood all of that. But once I met him, I found him to be such a perceptive, observant, and candid person, especially in thinking about his childhood. And I thought that he was such a wonderful he had such wonderful ability to evoke not only his childhood, but then many people's childhood just in the way that he spoke. And that made me feel, <coughs> excuse me, Babs. I mean that made me feel that this could be done. And then I began, you know, to meet. you know, when we're talking about the specific murder that I wrote about, I got to know one of the murder victims, family members very well. And it was similar with her. I felt that she really, really spoke in to, the particulars of her family life and her upbringing, both in South Carolina and then in New Haven, but also um, she did so with a kind of eloquence and a dignity and a grace, and also an honesty. Like she wasn't, she wasn't, she wasn't afraid to talk about anything. And I felt that by 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 knowing these people, they became sort of almost a, a window into many people's experiences. And that's what I think. What a, a writer seeks. You don't. You look at the specific in order to talk about many different people and to give people who maybe aren't aware of these experiences a deeper feeling for them.
0: So as you are as you are gathering this information and you're thinking, okay, how do you how do you tell the story in a way? Um, that is engaging, accurate, truthful, authentic, um, and and
1: compelling. <laughs> the, 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 you know, you do your best with all those things. And that is, that, that's the tall order, right, for making a good book. Um, and maybe that's why it takes so long. I mean, if I showed you the way I created the structure for this book, I'd put just the themes, just the bigger ideas that I wanted to talk about on little index cards, and I put them on the floor in the attic where I work. And I was moving them around and they were like boxcars on a railroad train, right? Because you want the order, the structure of your book to in some way or another, lift everything that you're saying and to make it go somewhere, to have, make again, deepen, have more feeling. As for accuracy, well, you tell me because I hope when I met you the first time that first I told you what I was doing and then I checked with you at the end of the conversation, I said, you know, Have I asked you about anything in a way that seemed as though I was going to go astray? Is my tone in any way suggest that I don't know what I'm talking about? Or did I mention anything in my part of our conversation that was factual that you thought was wrong? And I hope in the course of writing this that I did this with every single person. I was constantly checking myself back over and over and over again because let's just face it. Some of the problems that I was writing about persist because a lot of people don't care about them. It's easy for them to look past them. And for me, if I made mistakes, that gives gives people an excuse to look past things. And all I wanted to do was to do some good and to illuminate things that in one way or another, just I felt, I was far from the only one who I thought should be doing this, but in my own small way, in doing whatever part I could, I wanted to be sure that there was nothing about the book that was self defeating, if you know what I mean.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so you were a, a child in New Haven, and you come back to New Haven after being away, and you said, you know, I'm gonna come back, raise my family, and we do all these things. Did this book give you some peace, or did it give you a sense of revisiting your childhood? Like, what, what was that like?
1: Well, I think one of the reasons maybe I was alluding to earlier that I think New Haven is simultaneously a great place to grow up, but also sometimes a troubling place to grow up, is because it's got so much of what the country has to offer. And that's great for a writer, and I think that's also great for a child. The more I think you see of the world as a kid, the more interesting you know, potentially the world can seem and your life can be, you know, the more experiences you have. And I think in an, in New Haven, I always thought that experience was available to me, I have my bicycle and I could really go anywhere. And, you know, at the beginning of the book, Bobby is is a kid who takes it upon himself to ride all over the city on his bicycle, on his BMX bicycle. And that makes him pretty rare in his time. But you know, for me, again, because of baseball, I was just everywhere. And so that made instantly made New Haven a great place to grow up. When I came back, I think I felt that a little more New Haven was just as most kids are kind of you know stuck in their neighborhoods. I had the sense, and I might be wrong that maybe just a little bit more new haven was a place where people tended to be stuck in their neighborhoods now that could be wrong because uh you know one shouldn't generalize but that was my sense mm. And I felt that that was was something that I, you know, in my work, I have gone a lot of places in life. And that was something that I also felt in other places. Again, anything I pretty much would say about New Haven, I would say that New Haven just typifies New Haven's problems, whatever they are. And some of the beautiful things about New Haven too, they typify American, um, you know, sort of complexity of the country.
0: So you spend a lot of time. I mean, eight years is a long time to spend uh, with with the with these group of people because they, they are people and right um, what did that what did that do for you like what how do you do you sustain those relationships do they stay with you forever and ever do you feel like you yourself are connected to this in a in some metaphysical kind of way
1: that's a great question so I heard someone on the radio recently talking who makes movies a filmmaker. And they were talking about how it's just what it's like when people make movies for Hollywood and all these people get together for six weeks and they have this incredibly intense experience and they make a movie and they're almost like a family making the movie. And then they never see each other again and they just go on to the next intense experience. And, you know, and maybe they know like one person after that, or they work on another project together and they fall into each other's arms. Being a writer is a tiny bit like that because it is so intense, except that for me, with every project I've stayed in touch with, it just works out, not everybody would want to stay in touch with me, (laughs) but it's also true that, you know, (laughs) Every project, I think, you know, I there they're they're different there different numbers of people who you just naturally stay in touch with. I mean, I, you know, it's not prescriptive or anything, it's just kind of life, whatever happens. You know, it's like a work project for anybody. Some work projects you become friends with people, and other work projects you work closely together in a good way together, and then you moved on. I think this project, um, I felt particularly lucky in this project that, well, First of all, I interviewed over 500 people. That's a real lot of people, and that's what takes. That's one of the things that takes a lot of time, right? And I did that because I wanted to be really thorough, but I also wanted it to have lots of detail and nuance. You remember when you and I were talking about Newhallville when you were a child and we talked about, you know, the southern qualities of New Hallville. And you were telling me about, for example, the people who came up from the south who were who had farms and they they'd bring when the, when their produce ripened, they'd bring it up to Newhallville and they have a pickup truck and they'd drive around and people would come out and they buy fresh produce right off the truck that had been driven up overnight from Virginia, North Carolina or even South Carolina, places like that, right? And I loved stories like that because they really evoked both the day-to-day but also the vividness of a thriving community, right? And that's one detail, but there's so many other details that make up for what many people consider their neighborhood. And lots of people might remember the church, but then only one person might remember that that guy had a hole in his backyard over which he had a grate, and he'd figure out the best way to smoke meat in his backyard in that hole with the grate over it in his backyard, right? And then I would want to know how he did it or I'd want to know, you know, when New Haven was becoming increasingly segregated during white flight, I wouldn't want to just know that, you know, new, uh, a neighborhood like Newhallville became segregated. I really wanted to know how segregation worked. Uh, there's not, nobody's going to make a record of things that they're not proud of, right? But it is possible to find out how it actually happened, what the role of real estate brokers was, what, it was like when during that period of transition when black people and white people were living together and some of those white people were racist white people who were going to leave. Like, what exactly did they do? And so to do all of this and accumulate all those details so that you are telling the true history of a neighborhood, because for me, the neighborhood was the main character of the story and neighborhoods and what happens to neighborhoods and the consequences of neighborhoods for kids who grow up in them. This was this this was this was at the heart of what I was doing. And if you're going to do that with that level of, of, of detail, it just takes time. And so that's really, really what I wanted to do. I wanted people to love the neighborhood and to know the neighborhood. And so, yeah.
0: I like that. I like that a lot. Because I, 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 I always think that there's such a richness to all the neighborhoods in New Haven, right? Like New Haven is an interesting place where there's stories buried in all of the neighborhoods that make up the city. And, uh, and if you look and spend a little time, you'll get like a little snatch of it from folks, you know, if they're still standing. I I, I love that. So, Nikki, when did you know that you were going to be a writer? Like, did somebody put a pencil in your hand? Like, when did it catch on fire for you?
1: Well, I was, um, it was certainly, you know, you're good at some things in school and bad at others. And I was always <laughs> a kid who was like, that's what they said I was good at. But for me, there was, I mean, I love, I love playing sports and I loved books. And for me, both of those things, then I loved them in such a way that they seemed incredible and unattainable. And I remember just the idea that I could be a writer seemed so far afield that I never even really considered it until right at the end of college. I was just, I don't know what came over me. It was like a brave moment in life where you just say, I'm gonna try this. And I remember I told my mother, And because, and she said, well, okay, but don't think you're going to stay here. (laughs) You're going to have to find a job. So, you know, which I immediately did. Um, And, you know, and then at first, you know, I was just working for other people and doing all of my writing at night and on weekends and things. And it's like everybody else who really wants to do something that's difficult to do. Um, I felt like I was lucky to have the opportunity in life to try to do it. And I wasn't going to mess up my opportunity. I, was, I didn't know if I could do it, but you know, you know, I didn't know if it would happen. But I knew that if it didn't happen, it wasn't going to be because I didn't try hard enough. And I think the kind of writer I wanted to be, it wasn't really until my first book came out and I held it um, that, that I knew. And I remember right before it came out, I had my first book nightmare and i was lying i was already working on my second book but i was lying there and in, in where i was sleeping waiting for my book to come out and i had this nightmare that said they'll never let me do it again and that happens you know it's like my mother was a school teacher right and she had a school teaching nightmare every year before the first day of school that she would walk into class and she didn't know what to do and she just wouldn't know what to do. And she would describe these teaching nightmares to us after her first day of school. She wouldn't tell us in the morning, she'd tell us when she came home. And then she'd say, oh, kids, you know, I'm really tired because I had my teaching nightmare. And we would always know that, you know, mom had had her teaching nightmare, but that it had been okay and stuff. And for me, writing feels like something that I love and feel privileged to be able to do, but it always feels tenuous that, you know, you are, you are, you just never know how it will go and all you can bring to it is your very best. And you can choose the subjects that you, if somebody will let you write about them, that are important to you and you will do your best. But I I just wanna say with this particular subject, none has ever been more important to me and or, or ever felt more tenuous. Because when you're writing about things that are troubling for people that you think could be better, and part of the reason they aren't better is because People in a position to do something about these problems don't do it. That's simultaneously frustrating, and it just makes you want to do do better yourself, so that people won't 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 ignore maybe what 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 has been maybe not their top priority. If you see what I mean,
0: mm-hmm. it's kind of a
1: rambling answer. I'm sorry. No, no,
0: I I I follow. I get it. I do. I get it. So um, so as a writer, do you are you always thinking I want to write that story or at
1: some point I'm gonna get around to that story. Like, do the stories find you or do you find the stories? Well, as I told you, you know, throughout, you know, after after my New Haven childhood and I went to work, I'd come back to see my mom and like, Every couple of years in the New York Times, there'd be an article in the Times about the two Connecticut's, right? And that there were these two radically different Connecticut's, impoverished cities, and incredibly wealthy suburbs. And I would read that over and over. And it just seemed like, why should this be? It would ring through my head again. And I knew that I wanted at some point to find a way to write about this. And I'd come back to see my mother. And it just seemed to me, anecdotally, as a person just coming to see his mom, that the city was changing for the better, for the great university was here it seemed more and more prosperous, everything seemed lusher and lusher around it. You could read in the newspaper about how, you know, how the endowment was going up, 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 and its surrounding neighborhoods, its own backyard. I just had the feeling that there had been, ever since the factories had closed, there had never been a post-industrial solution. So therefore, there had been just you know, generational poverty for some families. And I felt that, you know, that there should be that incredible juxtaposition, the proximity of such, you know, opportunity and that the sources of opportunity were so limited, so close by, this really, really bothered me. And it just seemed on some deep fundamental level, wrong to me. And I did not understand as I traveled the country and saw similar juxtapositions, why people weren't talking about this more. And it's not to say that I was the only person talking about it, but clearly not enough people were talking about it since it persisted. So I decided that I would, you know, at one point when I could do the job well enough, in my own mind, I've, I had the level of competency, this was, w- what, was gonna, w- what would be. I mean, other subjects, how do you find them? I find them in all sorts of ways. One way that I've traditionally found subjects is I write a lot for the New Yorker magazine and the New York Times magazine, and I try... Not everything is a book, right? Some things might just be an article. So I t- tend to try things beforehand in a shorter way to see if I'll be able to write about them at greater length in a way that will sustain a reader.
0: Are you a, uh, Would you say you're a good observer of the human condition? <laughs>
1: You you can't make me praise myself. (laughs) I I don't know. I hope so. I mean, I think one thing I am is I'm pretty good at finding people who are good observers of the human condition so that in writing about other people, I hope I'm as observant and as sensitive and as compassionate as I, I can be. But I also think that any good observer as a writer should not rely just on themselves. And that's why you talk to so many people because observation is limited to whoever you are and whatever you bring to something. But if you talk to 500 people, that's a lot of different points of view. And that's really what I was after. Um, I really wanted to know what you thought. I wanted to know what Kerm thought. I want to know what Len thought. I want to know what you know, Katie Jean thought. I wanted to know what Cynthia thought. I wanted to know, All these people, if you have lengthy conversations with them, as I did with you, you're not just learning about the pickup truck, which is full of delicious vegetables that people are going to cook in such a way that as you walk down the block, you can smell what people are having for dinner. You're also going to learn how people feel about being in a position to not only provide a good childhood. For their children but a source of upward mobility and you're also going to learn when that is taken away what that feels like and if you can do that if you can listen to how a real spectrum of people are talking about things like that then just by extension i think you become a good observer but for me to become a good observer on my own then i'm not doing my job because my job is the experiences of many many people who are willing to authentically describe them
0: so do you think you have a memoir in you
1: Oh, I don't I, know if I, you have one. Do you I have did. one? <laughs> <laughs> I did. Yeah, no, when my, so when my father was someone who was a real, a person of great personal promise, who was like, you know, he's the child of immigrants, who's, you know, his grandfather sold things on the street. And then he, um, I won't bore you with stories of them, but, you know, it was a immigrant story of, you know, gradual uplift. My father became the first Grandson, you know, and he was gonna go. He went to wonderful college, and his he played high school football with Jim Brown. He played against him in college in lacrosse. I mean, these were, you know, he was a he 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 was a great student, and then he completely fell apart. He had psychotic breakdowns at a certain point. My mother, when we were little, very little, my sister was one, and I was three. We had to leave overnight because he became violent. He didn't know, you know, but nonetheless. And when he died, I felt as though all anybody had ever talked about were the years of his promise and his decline, all the years he spent in institutions, wandering in streets, you know, falling apart. This wasn't something people ever talked about. And I thought, well, it's my last chance. It's his eulogy, you know, and I'm going to tell people what it was like to be that person. And so that was my eulogy. And then it became a New Yorker article. And then I eventually expanded it into a kind of a memoir of my two parents. So,
0: wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And did your that was mom called ever get a chance to crowd sounds happy. The the what? The crowd sounds happy. That's what that book was called.
0: Did your mom get the chance to read it? Yep. And 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 what did she say?
1: Uh, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to talk to you and say the nice things that my mom's saying to me, but you know, I mean, I, it wasn't easy. I mean, we cried a lot. What can I say? I mean, this, you know, like many, many families have difficult things and every family has difficult things in the family. Right. And this was our, these were our difficult things and it had great effect on everybody. I mean, you know, my father was a tragic person and because of his, you know, just, you know, really hard life, it made my mother's life much harder, too. And when you marry someone who you're in love with, and they completely fall apart, and they become, you know, something that you are tied to because of your kids through your their whole childhood, this is not an easy thing. So I think it wouldn't be easy for my mother to go back through those things. And I really credit her for spending those days, looking at it very carefully with me and talking me all the way through. And she didn't ask me to change anything. Um, she just wanted me to make it better. I mean, that's the kind of person my mother is. She's a very noble person.
0: I like that.
1: Yeah. I mean,
0: listen, we all have things in our families but we all can't put, put them to, to paper. And so I think that's a real gift to sort of be able to do that. And uh, I, I almost like leaving a legacy for your own children to sort of explore and examine who their grandparents were and are. Like,
1: I think that's invaluable. So, yeah, it's funny when you're writing things like that, you, you, you think a little, you're right. You think a little bit about that. Like, who's this really for what good, what good could it do when I was writing that book, I was very conscious of the fact that people didn't, I mean, when I was a child in new Haven, nobody knew that I had a severely mentally ill father. I mean, I just never talked about my father. And that was perfectly easy to do as a kid from the same thing, reasons that I told you on the baseball field. It was just perfectly easy for all of us to exist in the present, to just treat each other as friends in the moment, playing baseball or going to school or whatever it was, and never talk about what was going on at home, which a lot of crazy things were going on in the homes of the kids that I grew up with who were my friends. And I only learned about them. I mean, it's moving to me, I'm sorry. but. I only learned about them, you know, when I was a grown-up. and then, you know, I, I, I felt very lucky in my childhood. I had a mother who was completely behind me. She worked her butt off, you know, and she, you know, it might not have been fancy. We, we didn't have a TV, we didn't have dessert, but we, we had, we were supported. We knew where we were going. We had, and, you know, but this, it was very hard at times to go and see someone who was as, who was as troubled as my father. And I had to go see him every month, minimum. You know, and it, I think it, it's better if people talk about things, because once I began after that to talk about it, first of all, I got, people didn't write about mental illness very much when I did that, and I got so many letters from readers, and that was, it was, one of my friends whose writer said to me, I'll never forget this, he looked across me, the table from me, we were having a beer or something, and he looked at me and he said, don't you understand that people feel closer to you when you talk about the hard things in your life? And, you know, I'd sort of been brought up, nobody admitted, you know, what my father's struggles were and things like that. And so I just, I mean, these were, you know, meaningful times.
0: I think that's uh, very, very, very valuable, because I think children now are taught to share and talk and 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 we know things about each other. I mean, I think we're around the same age, kinda. Of, maybe a some years difference. But I grew up with the same kind of belief that you know, you just whatever happened in the house happened in the house. And when you're out there in the streets, you just didn't you just didn't sit around talking about it. You just sort of were like you said in the moment, your friends, and that's just how it went down. So, but now I think kids and people have we have grown to the point where. Um, the doors are starting to open a little bit around secrecy and mental health and, you know, um, identifying those kinds of things around and people sort of sharing, like, yeah, yeah, your dad is mentally ill. Yeah. or well, my aunt or somebody, or, you know what I mean? Like we're, we're starting to sort of see more of people um,
1: opening up. So yeah, it wasn't just a- that, but I mean, you know, all the many things that seemed at one point in life, so, or in time when, you know, when, when I was a kid that seemed just, these were things that just should not be mentioned. And I think people were so afraid of mentioning them and there could be many reasons for it. But one thing I will say is that, you know, life is better when you're able to uh, put your feelings somewhere in such a way that you've cleared out to be more, you know, open to what's really going on with other people it sounds kind of you know um i don't know what it sounds but it's certainly i think um i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing i think i think i got to be a better writer once i wrote that eulogy for my dad because if you are holding something away from you that is that big in life and you are just keeping it from yourself i think that that means that you aren't fully able to express yourself in the thinking work that you're doing so you know Thank you, yeah.
0: Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I received that in a lot of ways that I can't begin to tell you. Um, so your book is out. How do you feel?
1: You know, I, um, every, every time you, you, there's a, there's a mixture of relief and anxiety. If you're being completely <laughs> honest, you want it, you want it to go well for the book, because especially if you're writing a book about, you know, things that you hope will be better in the world your own tiny tiny contribution to something like that you naturally hope that you know if you're writing about things that you feel have been somewhat ignored if your book gets ignored that's a double frustration right because your book is just your own every person can only do so much as what they can do but if this is what you d- you decide to do and you know people either don't think well of it or they don't pay any attention to it whatsoever that would make you feel twice bad, whereas usually you would just feel once bad. <laughs> <like that. laughs> but don't you think you've earned? Uh, that's some... an honest answer.
0: <laughs> but you've earned some. You've earned a great deal of grace around uh, establishing a reputation of being one of one of the finest American writers. Uh, so y- your book is not going to get ignored.
1: Oh. I guess I, I don't think of it in the same way you do maybe, I guess I think of it more that um, there's so many reasons to try, to try so hard to make your book as good a book as it can be. And the first mm-hmm. is, in this world, there is so much competition right now for people's attention. And it goes beyond whatever they're reading. There's so many different books for people to read. So many books are published. But then we live, when I was a little kid, all we had in our house for, was were radio and books, right? And I was someone who could listen to the radio and read a book. So I was always reading a book. But now... There are these little <laughs> rectangles with, you know, and on those rectangles, I guess you can have books on those rectangles, but that's not what most people have on their rectangles. Right. And they're <laughs> enormously distracting. And, you know, let's face it, you know, if you're looking at, if you looking at your phone all the time, you're not reading a book. So I just feel as though there's a lot of competition for people's attention. And it was up to me to do as well as I could in part, because I had to, you know, engage with that. <laughs> So that's, the, that's the, the granular on the kind of thing that a person thinks about when they're trying not to pay attention to their new book <laughs> and, not, <laughs> and not succeeding.
0: <laughs> now, now, do you have a ritual that once the book is out um, uh, that you do something or go on vacation or do you have a ritual of some sort to like say- okay, Yeah, I, have, I do on. have
1: a ritual. It's starting a new book before it comes out so that I don't have to pay <laughs> as much attention to its fate. <laughs> And Have so you started been, a new
0: book? You and it takes you know book? nine
1: months to a year from the time you finish the book until all the editing and fact checking and everything is done. So all those months, I've been working on a new book.
0: So you are working on a new book?
1: Always, always.
0: Seriously?
1: Always, always. I mean, I got kids. I, I you know, I mean, this is. <laughs> <laughs> <I get it. laughs>
0: this is this is this is what you do but
1: what i do i always
0: just think maybe you maybe need a little mental health downtime like okay. that might be
1: true and there might be members of my family who may be on <laughs> your side in that one
0: <laughs> like could you take a week off can you, you take a month off can you you
1: know i was you know, researching eat... this summer
0: oh my gosh really
1: yeah
0: oh lord god bless you i i, I admire that kind of commitment to to the craft Well, if you're
1: spending eight years on something, you know, that's a long time. And with it come many other consequences. And as a result, you better get going on the next one. Your wife's hands are going to go to her hips. And you say, you know, (laughs) what are we doing? (laughs) What are we doing? (laughs) Eight years, really? (laughs) That might happen. Huh. Yeah.
0: Well, I know that you are in conversation um, this evening at the New Haven Public Library at 630. And, and if people want to hear more, will there be books there to, to buy or like, what's the?
1: I think so. Um, and there also will be um, an event at Stetson Library. Next- yes. On the 26th, I think. Yes.
0: Yes. The Stetson uh, Library. And, and, and I think you're going to be in Madison.
1: Yeah, at R.J. Julia, um, which is a wonderful local independent bookstore. I, you know, my New Haven childhood was uh, going to the New Haven Public Library and checking out books, and I met my first writer there, Eleanor Estes. And uh, soon enough, I was shoveling her walk, and I was putting up her Christmas tree, and I was raking her leaves. And I did that for as many families as I could find, and then I would spend that money at places like. Atticus. And in the back in the day, it was like the foundry and book. Oh, my God. Yes. And, remember all those places? That's where I, In Cutler's record shop, that was all my money and clothes at Cutler's, too. <laughs> and um, so it's very exciting that tonight, for example, Atticus, where I bought books as a child, will be now selling my book at the library. And I think that there will be some books from the Community Foundation for Greater New Haven at Stetson that they have um, that they are bringing. And but it's, it's, you know, there are a million places. Obviously, you can buy books on Amazon. But for me, one of the great joys of New Haven was there were all these local independent merchants, yes. like the guy who sold, you know, my pants and my records and my books and my my bread and everything else you could buy from the, that family. And so I always, always um, try as best I can to buy things from the people who are my neighbors.
0: Yes, I like that. Well, I will see you this evening. And uh, if I don't buy a book today, I'll wait to buy, get it at the Stetson so you can sign it because I like a signed uh, copy. <laughs> anything,
1: anything that's good for you is great for me, Babs.
0: Well, it was such a pleasure talking to you, and I'm and I will <laughs> say this before I let you go. I did have a um, a conversation nightmare too, and I was talking about it at the early part of my show. I was I dreamed that I was you were waiting for me to come on, and I and all my devices would not let me be great. Like I could not. Get out, and I woke up with the sense of, oh my God. And I jumped up and I ran and I checked all my devices because I was so freaked out by that dream of not being able to talk to you today. That seems I-
1: like such a natural dream to have. Like when you're, cause like, like, it's like with our cars, right? We have to get to that meeting or something like that. And we don't really know how that, all that metal and wires and stuff under the hood works unless we know. And if you don't know, you feel just like you're so... You can't do what you do if, if the machine won't work. <laughs> that's, right. that's
0: right. So when you said, you know, your mother and her her nightmare and your nightmare, I was like, I just had that. I never have that. I had it today. I think because I was so excited to talk to you today. Oh, um, that's so nice of you. Uh, I've
1: been looking forward to it too.
0: And uh but I,
1: I really I, loved that day when you were telling me about the the, the 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 how the vegetables came to the pickup truck that would drive around the neighborhood and people would buy it and then you know, and then like somebody else was telling me a similar story, but it ended in that as you walk down the block, you could smell pineapple upside down cake outside everybody's house Yeah. and you, but you the best, the best baker you could tell just yes. from the smell. And I yeah. love things like that. To me, that is what community actually is. People doing things they love and making things that make other people feel good about life and so forth. And things that get in the way of that, it just kind of, you know, on some level pissed me off. Mm-hmm. So I wrote a book. <laughs>
0: Thank you for your time this morning and I wish you more success, every success with this book. I hope it's well received and I know um, uh, that you'll do quite well. So I will see you you soon. And I hope none
1: of your machines ever fail you.
0: (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Bye. Thank you so much. All right. Take 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 care. care. (laughs) Thank you, Nora, for sitting in for Harry this morning. I'll be back tomorrow. Y'all behave yourselves. I'll see y'all in these streets. Take good care. Mm-hmm. mm